Welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today I show me and Kim, co-founder of Vested. Vested is a marketing firm that specializes in dealing with fintech and traditional finance companies and helping them get their message across in edgier, more modern ways that are not traditional banking oriented. And with that, here's my interview with Bina. Hello, Bina. Hi. Thanks for taking the time. I'm excited. I love talking all things Good. fintech. Excellent. Excellent. Well, glad to have you on. So, Bina Kim, president and co-founder of Vested. Tell us about Vested. So Vested is an integrated agency for fintech and financial services firm. And that's a fancy way of saying that we help fintech companies tell their stories and use a variety of channels to do that. So social media, PR, advertising, events, digital, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a lot of fun. We get to work with a lot of really cool companies, both startups and public uh, fintechs, and it keeps my life pretty busy. Excellent. So tell us about what the genesis of the company was. What led to its creation? What need did you see? Great question. So about five years ago, I see we had our Jerry Maguire moment. I discovered I was- You were working somewhere else and hated it? Is that what it was? <laughs> <laughs> I had a goldfish, the whole thing. I, I was working somewhere else. It was a company that I worked with for over 10 years, building it with um, my current co-founders, actually. And I discovered I was three months pregnant with my second child. And I had one of those moments where I had to examine where I was in my life and what I was going to continue making sacrifices for. And at the time, we were working for another firm, similar, um, also focused on financial services, but we recognized we were at this inflection point. It was post-2008. We always joke that we worked with a lot of financial technology companies, which is what fintech companies used to be before it became a cool thing. That's before they decided the acronym. <laughs> you know, right? When we were working with like OMS and EMS companies and cross-asset mm-hmm. trading platforms before robo-advisory was even a thing. And we recognized this inflection point that was happening where sort of that technology converged within financial services was coming very quickly and how people and how brands within financial services needed to talk to their clients in more human, interesting ways. No more of this like fuddy-duddy, blue-gray and pictures of old people walking on beaches. Um, We saw that change coming and we recognized that what we wanted to build was an agency that sat at the intersection of that, that helped firms be more creative, that we could also act like a startup. We wanted to be a firm that sat at the intersection of technology, innovation, and financial services. And that meant we wanted to sort of fashion our own firm, which for marketing communications agency was weird to, to make it feel like a startup. So we said, you know what? We want to build this kind of firm. If we can't do it where we are, let's go off and do it for ourselves. So we up and quit without a plan, just a whole lot of conviction. And we started Vested. And Vested is exactly that. We're a firm that wants to work with the best brands within financial services. And some of those are fintech, some of those are financial services firms. And our own firm is modeled after startup culture. And so everyone gets an equity stake, unlimited PTO, and all the flexibility that comes with working for a really fast growing entrepreneurial firm. And it's been a whole lot of fun. Fantastic. So, I mean, it's it's funny. Um a little bit of my background, one of my close personal friends, and for those of you who hear a small voice in the background, my son is currently taking remote uh, kindergarten, so you might hear that from time to time. COVID life, what can I say? So as I was saying, a, a close personal friend of mine is an art director in the marketing in the marketing industry, and we often commiserate over just terrible, terrible marketing we see within certain industries. You know, For example, every car company has to show you them driving through a mountain range. You know, I'm not sure how much oh, driving yeah, happens in mountains. Uh, you know, <laughs> and, and in plant, yeah. 
it's a prerequisite, right? It's like, it's, it's like a trope at this point. And every, every, you know, the financial services industry, especially the more traditional line lines of business are just rife with like the same commercial. You can just change the colors and logo and it would be you wouldn't be able to tell that it was a different it was the same commercial shot for for two different companies and it also reminds me of there was this one from this one episode of mad men where they came up with the private executive account and like <laughs> you know they're like they're like what are we gonna call this you know it's you know we'll call it the executive account like what you call private well, what does that even mean or something like that and then they then they go meet with the executives and the executives like everything's right so if you need to word the, the word private in front of it it's just like Someone tell me what a private client is versus a public client. I'm not, I'm not I don't know what that is. Anyway, so, <laughs> well, so I mean, you, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, the bad news is, is that you deal with a lot of companies in traditional lines of business that maybe don't want to be sharp, edgy, innovative. But the good news is, is that you get to be very different if they're willing to take a chance. Right. And I think you must have, I mean, I'm guessing you must see a lot more willingness from tech startups to be different than what came before. Is that in their marketing? Is that the case? Yeah, that's absolutely fair. I think, you know, maybe one of the bigger differences, and, and I think some financial services firms would argue it's unfair, is a lot of technology firms came into the space without the specter of a huge amount of regulation over them, right? Mm. And I think a lot of that is changing. I think more regulation is being put upon fintech companies as they start to take a closer look at these firms. And if you look at what's happened with Robinhood, for example, I think there's more scrutiny being paid to, are they protecting their investors? But I think the traditional, whether you call it financial advisors, asset managers, banks, is that specter of putting stuff out there that's going to be non-compliant or we're going to get a slap on the wrist is scary. So sometimes it's easier to stay in the safe space. But then fintech firms came on. And I remember there was this one stunt, I want to say it's TransferWise, where they had people running naked through the streets of London. And can you imagine? Okay, you I have know, no idea what that has to do with foreign currency <laughs> transactions, but I, I'm, I'm curious to know imagine, what the corollary is. Yeah, exactly. And can you imagine Western Union pulling that kind of stunt off and what kind of blowback they would get? I think fintech firms had this opportunity and they took it to be bold, to be subversive, but that's changed. And I think what you're seeing is now what I call the sort of convergence, which is fintech companies now have to feel more grown up. They used to take these huge brand risks and now they want to feel safe, validated. Your money is safe with us. So you're going to see how much their brands and tones have changed to feel more secure, compliant. We're looking after you. We have a fiduciary responsibility. But then you're saying the big companies, you look at Goldman Sachs, for example, now they're coming in and they're like, we can be edgy. We can afford to take those risks because we are established. We've got a lot of law firms and compliance firms behind us. We can back up our statements. So we're actually seeing the financial services firms wanting to take bigger and bigger risks. And I'm seeing that across not just the big firms, but boutiques. I mean, I can't tell you the number of even independent RIAs who come to me and say, we want our brand to be different. We want to tell a different story. We want to feel different from every other advisor out there. And they're talking about specializing in working with entrepreneurs or fintech companies, for example. Sorry, as a financial planner, as a financial planner, I always laugh at that because, you know, you ask them what their market is and the response is almost universally. And I'm, you know, my slide is guilty of this a little bit, but we do go pretty deep on it. It's yeah. the, uh, oh yeah, I work with business owners, uh, executives, and uh, wealthy independent families. I'm, and my response is always, so you work with people with money. Thanks. Thanks <laughs> exactly. for telling me that. So you, you really don't have a niche. Okay. But how much of this, I got to say, so you're seeing you're seeing the, the convergence, right? You're seeing the old line businesses trying to get more edgy. And I will make, you know, I will give Goldman um, all kinds of credibility, given all the moves they've made in the last couple of years with some of the acquisitions they've been doing. And then you're seeing the startups basically get more mature in their marketing. So 
let's look at those startups. How much of that might just be simply market dynamics? Like they've gotten the millennials who hate banks and screw that. I really don't care about this. And security is a secondary issue because I'm just going to assume it's taken care of. And now, you know, they've taken over that much of the market. And if they want to get, keep on meeting their growth targets, mm-hmm. they got to start talking to a more mature audience. How much of that is, is market right. driven? Yeah. I would say a significant portion. I think we've always said when these, I would say challengers came into the market, People were like, this is going to be the future of financial services. And the reality was they were capturing a very small percentage of portfolio and wallet share. Now, in order to get the initial funding, they had to capture the lowest hanging fruit, right? You know, younger generations of investors, smaller dollar accounts, but people who are excited to take a digital first approach to their finances. But now they have to move upstream. They have to move up into older folks, people with more established portfolios, more money to be considered. And of course, like it's going to be a little bit of an uphill battle, but I think what you're seeing now is more acquisitions like the Goldman Sachs example. You're going to see more traditional financial services companies swallowing up these fintech companies and therefore enabling them to serve more affluent customers, older generations, because they're going to be backed by these really big brands. So it's absolutely yeah. market dynamics at play. Well, I mean, I think it's it's two other market forces there too. I mean, one, I think, you know, just the, the move towards open banking, a lot of these, a lot of these companies are going to reinvent themselves as platform providers, which is smart, right? You know, don't have to market to every small niche because you can't effectively do that. But if someone else can piggyback off your infrastructure, they can build a profitable business marketing to that small niche. The second piece being part of it is if if, you're, if part of your value proposition is passing on the cost savings from using digital first technologies and and really trying to undercut the competition. The reality is you just destroyed the economics of that business for yourself to some degree, right? And you need massive amounts of, of volume in order to do that. So it's not surprising that you know once you tap out the millennial market, which is not known for having a lot of money, especially in the US given student debt, it's not surprising that you're at the you're gonna have to move up market and talk a more sophisticated game. So talk to me about how those two different conversations happen. So you have how much arm twisting is there right now? Let's start with the big with the big traditional line businesses. How much arm twisting is when they, when they uh, is there is involved when they come to you, or is your reputation such that you guys are known to push that limit? So therefore, they're coming to you for that in the first place. Yeah, I would say sort of natural self selection. I think I think we've created a brand for being different, and I always say like vested is not going to be everybody's favorite flavor. <laughs> we present a certain way and I think we're not everybody's choice. And that's because we are different. We will challenge people to think differently. And so I would say we attract firms who come to a point in their storytelling where they go, okay, we need to tell something different now. We need to be different. And a lot of the firms that hire us, American Express, City, Morgan Stanley, others, they hire us because of that difference and because they want to think creatively. So I think we're fortunate in that. There's always a little bit of arm twisting, but I I think, like I said, through sort of natural self-selection, most of the clients who come to us are ready to do things differently, which makes our jobs that much more fun. And easy, you know, you don't, I'm sure you do have the moments where they're like, you want us to do that? (laughs) And and you're like, you said you wanted edgy and different. (laughs) Exactly. I always say- If there's a look of slight shock, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> so well, it means we you always... move the needle just enough to cross their threshold of yeah, comfort, it's right? And if you raise if it's... an eyebrow, yeah. Yeah, exactly. and if it doesn't cross the threshold of comfort, you probably haven't gotten there yet. And then also the, <laughs> unless they jump and say, absolutely not, then you know you've gotten too far, right? So right. let's flip the conversation then. On the startup side, you know, when they're coming to you and saying, okay, um, so we've got the millennials now, their parents. How are we going to edit our very edgy look to to basically appeal to those people? 
Yeah, I think it's funny. Whether you say, I would say a lot of these firms are maturing. You know, we talked about market dynamics at play. The other thing is the founders of these companies are also getting older. They're becoming parents. They're starting families. And I think it's created a much stronger understanding of maturation of their own internal cultures and the types of people they hire, but also a recognition of how their own brand is maturing. And it's really interesting because I think if you see a little while ago, you saw a lot of, you know, 20-year-old entrepreneurs, like, you know, they're much older now. They're probably in their 30s and starting families. So I think even that own, the lens through which they're looking at their own companies, products and services is changing. But yeah, I would say that the idea of looking towards an older or more mature audience is not just about communicating about problems like you're starting a family and how can we be there? You're buying your first house. Here are tips on what to think about. It's also just the tone and the style in which they communicate. Like a lot of these brands took very subversive tactics in the beginning and it was like, we're not the bank, we're the anti-bank. And if actually, if you see how their story has changed, it's gone more to empathy. Like we're here for you. We understand you. We're listening to you. And so that pivot that I think a lot of brands have gone to, which is like, we understand your very specific needs and our entire platform is catering to your specific needs. I think resonates not just for older generations, but younger generations too. And I think it's an important pivot that a lot of brands have made. I get that. Only so many people are willing to join the revolution, right? And beyond that, it's nice that you're like that. Tell me what you're going to do for me, right? Like that's... (laughs) That's right. I say it's kind of like Netflix, right? Like, do you watch Netflix because Netflix is challenging the traditional movie theater or, you know, the former blockbuster experience? Or do you watch Netflix because Netflix knows you better than you know yourself? And you're like, you're right, Netflix. I do want to watch that. Oh, thank you for knowing me so well. And for serving up great content that now I can sit on the couch and watch. You enjoy Netflix because of how it gets to know you and how it's really good at serving up great great experiences for you. And I think that's what people want in their financial services provider. I think the whole revolutionary challenger thing appeals to some people, but for the vast majority of people, they just want to live a better life. They want to have a better experience. They want things to be easier for them. And I think fintech companies have had the opportunity to do that through technology. They can make a really great user experience. They can serve things up via mobile and on a desktop, and it's not a huge pain in the butt. And I think a lot of institutions are now realizing, okay, we actually do have to totally transform how our customers work with us because it is still a giant pain in the butt to take out a mortgage, right? It's still a giant pain in the butt to like switch accounts. It's a giant pain in the butt to like maybe take a full look at your portfolio. And I think what people have enjoyed about FinTech is a really great user experience. Yeah, I would agree. I think so there's a specific challenge. Though. I mean, I think when you're marketing to one type of consumer, the subversive manner, and then you need to expand beyond that, there's a danger of going to broad market, right? Of trying to service everybody. So how do you help them navigate that? Are you having them focus in on a couple of value propositions in particular, or what's the solution to that? Look, I think everyone's trying to find their competitive wedge. And I do think that's important. I think having a moat and identifying what that is, is important. I think right now, Understanding your why is critical. Why do you exist as a company? What impact are you trying to make in the world? And I, I'm sure like 
you've mm-hmm. had many guests on talking about the push towards ESG and mission-driven investing and how everybody, whether you're mm-hmm. a younger investor or an older investor, you're actually starting to think about how is my money affecting some sort of change, whether it's in my portfolio or in my life, but also outward. Like, am I putting my money behind the right types of companies, people who are doing good for a society? I actually don't want to support these types of firms or these types of people. And I think even for a fintech company or otherwise, a lot of brands have had to take a cold, hard look at their purpose and mission. What's our why? Do we exist to make money? Are we trying to affect some sort of broader impact on on the community? And if so, what is that? And I think more firms or more customers are making choices on who they decide to work with based on that why. And that why has to be meaningful. That why has to be authentic. Maybe it's not super different from another fintech down the road. But the important thing is that when your customer talks to you and sees your presence on social media or sees what statements you're putting out, they feel good about the company that they're choosing to bank with, invest in, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the why, defining the why is important. It speaks to other trends in technology and in services, which is just hyper-personalization, right? At the end of the day, a more satisfied client is one who feels a connection with what the institution that they're that they're doing it. And, and you look at everything else we have in our lives now. I mean, Amazon knows when I need to reorder you know, toilet paper, which during COVID was a challenge. Netflix, as you said before, knows the types of things I like to watch and serves those up. You know, We're getting very used to not having to have the cognitive burden of finding things that essentially match our values or interests or whatever it might be. And financial services has been a laggard in that industry for a very long time. And for something that is so important to just greasing the wheels of how we do everything in the world, that's big oversight, quite honestly. So, I mean, the good news is, is that we're getting there, right? Is that we're starting to see that those types of conversations happen. And it's also, it also, it's funny because you have some of the early innovators in the space saying, we're going to destroy the advisory world because, you know, you guys are paid too much. And then they're discovering people seem to really like their advisors. Maybe there's something where maybe the function isn't the problem here, right? And realizing that the relationship and the comfort and, and and the help and the utility they gained from that was something that they couldn't replace, right? So I think it's it's now a lot of these companies are changing their tunes to how do we enable that relationship because that seems to be what the market really wants. Yeah, I think the same way in which a lot of these platforms, Amazon, Netflix, I mean, they're sitting on data and that data is essential to what they're doing. And I think what a lot of financial services and fintech companies are focused on right now, without seeming super creepy and big brothery is, How do they use that data, the customer data that they're sitting on top of the insights they have into how you spend, how you save, where is the money going to serve up better insights and recommendations for you to say, hey, Jason, I noticed that you order Seamless on Fridays and that's great. Here are other recommendations we have for you. If you're a foodie, here's a better credit card for you. This type of credit card based on your spending behaviors is going to deliver you more points and better discounts. Or we notice that you have these bills coming up. And what we're going to do is start to think about how you can better save money. Like there's so much data that our financial services firms have access to, and they're really starting to put lots of machine learning, AI, data science behind it to start to deliver up more personalized recommendations to their clients. And I think we've actually gotten so used to it now that the failure to do so is what's impacting our experience at the bank branch or when we're calling up a credit card company. It's like, how can you not know this about me? You see it in my Mm -hmm. account. You should already know this the same way you would expect that when you get on the phone with Amazon. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. On the phone with Amazon. Yeah. 
like one credit card company in particular, I called them and said, I'm going to be out of the country in this country. So you're going to see transactions from there. It's like, okay, but I'm going to be honest with you. The guy's like, okay, I'm going to be honest with you though. It's like, we can flag that our systems can't flag that and say, it's okay that it's coming from this. So right. I'm like, is there no place to put these notes when something goes under review? No, I'm just like, oh God, Like, then why do you people tell us to call you if you're going on vacation, right? It's just like, all these things sound great, but the bigger problem is a lot of them are sitting on 1960s architecture technology. So it's like, good luck getting that data exactly. and making it actionable. Oh boy. So before we uh, wrap up, there's a, I want to talk about uh, issues surrounding uh, diversity where possible. Um, whenever I, I do get specifically women on the podcast, which are sorely missing from my podcast, female founders, if you're hearing me, I tried to create balance. Please reach out to me. I can't find enough of you. It's, 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 it's unfortunate. But, you know, specifically, you have a different lens or a kind of a three-party lens, right? You have your own industry and understanding issues around diversity. And, you know, mentioned specifically your Jerry Maguire moment, you know, you're pregnant, you're looking for work-life balance, all this other stuff. Within your own industry, within traditional lines of financial, of the, take that back, within the traditional line of financial services company and within the fintechs. So contrast how you see like each of those segments of the market basically evolving or what their state is in terms of how well they're they're dealing with issues surrounding diversity and, and workplace culture surrounding diversity issues. Yeah, it's, it's such an important topic. And I think obviously 2020 has been a year for, for everyone. And I think it's drawn- well, It's been a year. <laughs> it's been a year. It's been an even bigger and more bright spotlight on all the issues and challenges our industries face across fintech, financial services, et cetera. It's interesting. I think that the more traditional financial services firms, they've had initiatives going on for many years now focused on diversity and inclusion. Arguably, it might be more slow moving because I think when you're a pretty sizable organization, change doesn't happen overnight. But I've seen stronger and stronger commitments from larger financial services firms to focus on how diversity and inclusion is impacting recruitment, leadership, what their boardrooms look like, the products and services. So heightened focus there, but the change doesn't happen overnight. When you look at the fintech industry, I will say whether it's fintech or tech more broadly, while that change could happen more quickly, it is not happening quickly enough and consistently across every single firm. And I think some firms have done the right thing. Like they've implemented a lot more focus on recruitment methods. Like, are they creating an inclusive environment? Really looking at their benefits policies. Are they attracting women into leadership positions? If it's clear that the way the work-life balance or the culture or the benefits is not set up to promote women into leadership positions, we even seen some firms really dig their heels in and say, this is the type of culture we are. It's going to attract a certain type of firm and a type of person. And you're like, but that's not really the right culture, right? And I know, I think some people associate being inclusive with not working as hard. And I don't think that's How true. That possible? You know? <laughs> what, is, what a ridiculous you know? stigma. Yeah. And oh my goodness. It's, um, uh, it's just really interesting when I hear stories and, you know, it's not any of our clients, but when I talk to other women who've left certain positions in the fintech industry, it was for that reason. It was, I work damn hard, but I'm being told I'm not working enough because I had to leave early to pick up my kids from school, but I'm back online at like seven and I'm working until midnight. But, you know, just because I'm not sitting in the office with the rest of the engineers playing ping pong until like 11 o'clock at night does not make me any less of a valuable worker or leader. So I think while change is happening in sort of, especially in the startup industry, I think things can change faster, but it takes greater recognition among boards, investors, and founders to change that quickly. And I also think that the more the VC and private equity community can invest 
and female entrepreneurs, I think the better. And I think you've seen a lot of the stories that have come out about how hard it's been for female tech founders to get funding and some of the issues that they've faced in trying to do that. Um, I think it's a real shame and I, I do see change happening, but I think more can still happen. Yeah, I mean, definitely work can still happen. It's funny you mentioned that entire, that story there. I mean, I actually know someone personally who was the male actually working in a tech company who said, you know, I got to get this conference call to go pick up my kids. And they thought he clicked off and one guy snapped about who the hell does this guy think he is and whatever else, you know, we worked until blah, blah, blah. And it's, it's just, so it's not just limited to women. The cultural issue can hit both people. And I guess it self-selects out more for men because they can maybe shift the women, hold this proportion of burden of family life, unfortunately. But it's um, it's funny. And the other point you made too about the engineers playing ping pong to all hours of the night. This is the interesting thing about this. I have a really hard time with companies that value the old school world of almost butts and seats or being present as opposed to getting the work done. I think a lot of those views on not working hard are viewed around time as opposed to productivity. And I don't know about you, but when people, the old saying about uh, if you want something done, give it to a busy person, proves true. It's proven true in my entire life, right? <laughs> Between myself <laughs> yeah. and others I've known. It's like, oh, you're juggling these seven things. How did you get the eighth one done so fast? And it's just like, because I had to, right? Like it, it exactly. is what it is. So you are hyper-productive. Yeah. yeah. And I will say, That's I think it. one good thing that has come out of the pandemic is because so many people had to work virtually all of a sudden, I think it put a focus on productivity versus you sitting at a desk. It's focused on output versus that person looks like they're working hard because I see them in the office and I see them there late at night. But are they truly being productive? And now with everyone virtual, like we're all handling, you know, kids at home and homeschooling and people see kids running around in the background. But at the end of the day, it's about output, right? And it's like, are you adding value? So I think what maybe what's exciting about that is creating much greater openness to flexibility, to how you work versus where you work. And I think that's been such an important pivot for the technology industry and for financial services as well. Well, if there's one industry that should understand, it's the technology industry, right? I have several friends who are programmers and, you know, they'll say the same thing when hiring. It's like, no, like a good, a really, really, really good coder is 10x the productivity with half the code of five guys. So if if any industry understands the, the value of quality over quantity, it should be the technology industry. Applying that level of thinking should go not just to code, but to everything else for anyone listening. Thank you very much. So before we wrap up, there's three questions that I, I ask everybody to kind of end on a positive yeah. note. The first one is, if you had one wish or something could change in your company or in the industry as a whole, what would it be? Ooh, if I could change one thing, I would say, I really hope that we can, like, this is going to sound so cliche, but I'm going to say it anyways. I think that the financial services and fintech industry have so much wealth, power, and opportunity to hopefully close the wealth gap that exists between disadvantaged communities and people of color Mm -hmm. in America and and abroad. And I hope that we can finally work together to close that gap because it shouldn't be widening. It should be closing, especially with just the amount of money. Like I think 2020 has actually been a pretty good year for financial services. And I think what what we need to do is come together to fix some of the solutions that are, fix some of the problems that are facing our society and our community, particularly here in the U.S. Well, I think yeah, those trends are global in other ways, and I would agree with you. Um, I mean, it's that's, that's one of the great enablers of technologies. It drops the minimum minimum cost for delivery of services substantially, and it 
it's definitely powerful in that manner. Just I think you have to make more of a focus of it, but it is, it's always going to be a challenge, but you're right. Yeah. I don't think it's cliche at all for the record. Second question, what's been the biggest challenge in getting the company to where it is today? Oh, I think probably the biggest challenge for us. I mean, you know, my industry is probably a little bit unique in that we're a professional services firm. So I think probably one of the biggest challenges is how you preserve your cultural core and hire as quickly as possible. Because I always say finding great people is a bit like finding unicorns. And it's tough to find great people who have the skill sets and align with your culture. So if you're a unicorn and you're listening to this right now, please call me up because we're looking for really great <laughs> people to join our team and I can't hire people fast enough. But I think what most firms face is you get anxious to hire and you hire a whole bunch of not right people for your culture because you need bodies to be doing the work and it ends up being just this like downward slope into like cultural dilution kind of crappy people and the good people leaving so for us it's like sticking to our cultural core finding great people to join our team and everything else falls into place for us yeah well it's funny because it doesn't matter what industry i interview the most popular like answer for this question is people. And I will echo the entire, if you hire Ron just to fill the gas because you're going too fast, you're just setting the stage for the eventual collapse, right? It's uh, That's right. Steve Jobs was not overly kind during hiring, but his, you know, was this something the effect of A's hire B's, B's hire C's and C's hire D's. And it's just, you know, if you only hire A's, then you can kind of try to limit that downward spiral. And then final question for you is what excites you the most about what it is you're working on today and keeps you getting out of bed every morning to fight the good fight? Oh, what excites me the most is I think financial services can do so much good in the world. And I really do believe that. I think finance sometimes gets a bad reputation for reasons true and false. But what gets me out of bed is that I feel like I can help play a part in helping financial services firms tell a more inclusive story and build products and services that will pull more people into the financial system and ultimately set them up for better financial futures. And I'm excited about the companies that we're working with today that are doing that, future companies that I hope to work with that are doing that. And that makes me excited because I feel like I can actually make a positive impact through that work. So that gets me excited. Plus my kids, my kids get me out of bed every morning too. (laughs) Physically, right? Physically, I have the same problem. (laughs) Yes. Excellent. Well, Bina, thank you so much for taking the time. Very much appreciate it. It was fun. Thanks for having me on. So that was my interview with Bina Kim. I hope you enjoyed that. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you podcast. And until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.